This week we're giving you an early Christmas surprise because today is a bonus episode of the Bytewing Games podcast. Today I'll be sharing my first impressions of seven hot games. Alright, more like five hot games and two older ones which are brand new to me. Splendor Duel, Guards of Atlantis 2, Kin, Manhattan Project, Energy Empire, Nine Lives, The Wolves, and Ready, Set, Bet. My name is Nick Murray, and you are listening to the Bywing Games Podcast. So to start off today's bonus episode, we're going to talk about Splendor Duel, which I have two plays of at two players, because it's a two-player game. Speaking of which, what even makes a great two-player game? Obviously, one must start with a solid foundation. If the core gameplay loop isn't interesting, then there is no real point to any of it. Splendor Duel has no issue there, as it builds off the tried-and-true groundwork laid by the evergreen engine builder, Splendor. Namely, you collect gems to purchase cards that make it easier to purchase more and better cards. That sense of starting at a snail's pace, scraping by and saving up to get the most measly of rewards, and snowballing in strength and efficiency to claim the meatiest of prizes is what landed the dead simple Splendor in Board Game Legend. That experience is wisely preserved in Splendor Duel. So, how did designers Bruno Cathala and Marc Andre take the good two player experience of Splendor and make it a great one in Splendor Duel? The answer is found across all of the gameplay changes. The gem chips are laid out in a grid where players must identify drafting opportunities to claim a run of the right colors. Chips are quickly snatched off the board, and rivals feel both tempted and reluctant to refill the gem grid because both players benefit in different ways. In fact, Doing anything on the shared board that helps yourself too much grants your opponent privilege, which can be spent as a bonus gem draft from the grid. Thanks to the privilege mechanism, you're constantly wrestling with tough decisions. Should I make a sub-optimal move because it only helps me? Do I execute my plan later than preferred or earlier than expected simply to avoid giving my opponent bonuses? The cards in this version of Splendor also give you more to consider than simply which card is the most easily affordable for me. You must also consider the bonus effects from cards that grant an extra turn, or an additional gem, or a wild resource. But the best improvement of all is undoubtedly the three-pronged path to victory. No longer is the game simply about slapping together an engine and then seeing who can crank out the most points. The dynamics increase tremendously by offering players three possible ways to win. They are reach 20 points total, gain 10 crowns, or reach 10 points with one color of card. Splendor Duel follows a much more engaging arc than Splendor by starting as a classic engine builder, but finishing as a mad scramble to cross the closest finish line. By providing multiple paths to victory, the competition becomes three-dimensional and bitey, where some two-player games can so easily devolve into a flat, repetitive, zero-sum tug-of-war, and others take the coward's way out by removing the interactive competition altogether, Splendor Duel expertly demonstrates what makes a great two-player game. The best dueling games understand how to divide one opponent into multiple threats. I give an excellent prognosis to Splendor Duel. Next, let's talk about Guards of Atlantis 2, which I have one play of at six players. 
Despite having decades of experience playing hundreds upon hundreds of different games, both digital and tabletop, I have never played a MOBA until very recently. I suppose I've gotten close with real-time strategy video games like StarCraft, Warcraft 2, and Rise of Nations. But the difference is that MOBA games don't feature things like building construction, resource collection, and army raising. So my first foray into the MOBA genre was actually a recent play of a hot new board game in the form of 2022's Guards of Atlantis 2. Although the online part of MOBA, multiplayer online battle arena, doesn't really apply, I'd honestly say it's more accurate to call it a MABO. Movement always, battle occasionally. Allow me to get back to that in a minute. Guards of Atlantis 2 reminds me of Gloomhaven in a lot of ways. Each player controls a character with a unique deck. Your cards possess stats such as initiative, movement, defense, attack, range, and text effects. Players simultaneously choose and reveal a card from their hand to play each turn, and these cards are resolved in initiative order. You'll be using your cards to maneuver around a hex-based map to dodge, chase, and beat up on bad guys. The thing that makes Guards of Atlantis quite different from Gloomhaven is the fact that the bad guys are controlled by an opposing team of human players. The fact that the game comes with 22 different characters, which can be mixed together to form a virtually infinite combination of teams, is pretty neat. The character decks are wildly different as well, with each one encouraging a certain style of play. Each round, you'll only play through four of the five cards in your hand, unless you burn even more of them defending against enemy players. But another satisfying feature comes in the form of upgrading your hand. You'll earn money as you wipe out enemy figures, characters, and or minions, and be able to spend that money on card upgrades at the end of each round. These upgraded cards are significant boosts that help you to feel more powerful and adapt your strategy as the game marches onward. The other standout aspect of Guards of Atlantis 2 is the victory conditions. Your team can win in three possible ways. First, win enough battles in a row and force the battlefield back into the enemy's corner. Second, defeat enemy heroes enough times, meaning eliminate all of their life counters. Or third, win the final battle if it comes down to a fifth battle tiebreaker. The fact that your team has multiple avenues for winning means that you can adapt your strategy to play to your team's strengths while working to shore up your weaknesses. It also helps to keep the later rounds from feeling too similar to the earlier rounds. I can see why folks are raving about this game, as there is a lot to love. As for myself, I get the strong impression that MOBAs are not for me. Like I hinted earlier, my experience was more of a MABO, movement always, battle occasionally. <laughs> While most of your cards have a secondary action of movement, I would argue that this is deceptively the primary action of the game. At the beginning of the game, each team starts out in their corner of the map. Your first turn always consists of fast movement, basically spending a card to teleport into the next zone over because the first battle takes place two zones away in the middle. For most heroes, your second turn will be yet another movement, this time moving roughly one to four spaces to get in close to the enemy minions or characters. Finally, on turn three, you're usually ready to start using the effects or attacks on your remaining cards. But a single attack, if successfully dealt, immediately kills the target, and so the odds are that you'll need to move yet again to be within range of another target. After a battle is fought to the bitter end, the battlefield moves over to an adjacent zone where the minions respawn. But all the heroes have to spend one or more turns trekking across the now dead zone to get to the new hot region. 
Even worse, if the enemy manages to take down your hero, you'll lose your current turn, if you haven't taken it yet, and then spend the next 1-3 to three turns getting back into position because you had to respawn at your corner of the board. So, my experience with Guards of Atlantis was two-thirds trudging around and waiting several minutes between each monotonous movement and one-third whack-a-mole of anything that wasn't my team's color. There was even an uninterrupted stretch of 40 minutes of our three-hour, six-player game where I did nothing but move due to a combination of dying, respawning, and realizing, to my dismay, that moving around to avoid a threatening enemy or to reposition for the next battle was the optimal thing to do. At some point, I have to wonder if MOBA-style gameplay is better suited for the real-time digital medium, where the action is continuous and downtime doesn't exist. While I can appreciate the love, care, and passion that went into Guards of Atlantis 2, and I understand why fans rave about it, I've learned that it isn't my type of game. I just can't savor the sporadically occasional payoff of a good attack or a well-coordinated combo when it is surrounded by so much tedium. I must say... Nudging a figure around on a map just to get from point A to point B is about as much fun as watching a loading bar reach 100%. I give a poor prognosis to Guards of Lannis 2 for my tastes and my collection. Next up, let's talk about Kin, spelled Q-I-N, which I have two plays of at two players. Now, for a moment there, I thought it had finally happened. After searching for months, years even, I thought I had finally found a big box Kinesia design that I disliked. Some have just been fine, most have been great, and several have been phenomenal. But after my first play of it, Keen seemed like it would be one that wouldn't do it for me. Predictably, my problem with Keen wasn't that it was too bloated or broken or careless. I've never seen Reiner make those kinds of errors. Rather, after one play, I found Keen to be too simple, basic, and redundant for my tastes. Mind you, I've enjoyed plenty of Kinesia games that are simple and subtle, but I'm accustomed to such games having a clever twist that makes them special. With Keen, it felt as though that secret ingredient was missing. In Keen, players are racing to put out all of their pagodas first. Your hand consists of three domino tiles, and each tile is made up of a combination of colors, red, yellow, or blue. Players spend their zippy turns placing out one tile and replenishing their hand. Whenever your tile establishes a new province, meaning two or more connected squares of a single color, then you'll place your pagoda on this province to claim it. One player can overtake another player's province of a matching color by connecting them together and having the bigger province. This is kind of like a highly distilled version of a Tigris and Euphrates war. Provinces can also overtake a neutral city space, letting you put out another pagoda by surrounding them with majority pagodas. And this is like a simplified version of Samurai. You can also earn a double pagoda, stacking one on top of another if your province becomes large enough. But this also eliminates the vulnerability of this province, meaning nobody else can overtake your double pagoda. In essence, Keen takes a few of the general concepts of Kinesia's classic tile layers and presents them in the most basic possible manner. It's a perfectly functional game with some meaningful decision making, but it doesn't quite evoke the tension drama, or emotion of its predecessors. To be fair, I'm comparing Porkeen to stone-cold classics here, and almost any game is going to struggle in that kind of matchup. This unfair comparison would be much more forgivable if Kin only brought something unique to the table. As is, the only thing it offers is a quick playtime and simple rules. 
and I can get that from plenty of other more interesting Kinesia designs. Yet I've created a golden rule for myself when it comes to Kinesia games. Even if I don't like it on a first play, it deserves a second chance. Nobody is better at hiding deeper layers under a simple premise than Reiner Kinesia. Often, it takes more than one play to uncover these layers. We returned to Kin several days after our first go, this time playing on the backside of the board. The map changes here are minor, but welcome. The starting area is off to one side rather than in the middle, forcing players to collide sooner. And some of the spaces are blocked out by water, creating more boundaries throughout the middle of the board. We also entered with a better understanding of how to play well, and it showed. This play was much more competitive with moments of sly gambles, payoffs, ruses, and blocking. It was engaging enough to make me second guess my initial impressions and interested to see how things play at three or four players. In conclusion, it's certainly possible to sand down all the rough edges and sharp corners of a game only to be left with a dull experience. Kin flirts with that line, enough to make me unsure of its staying power. Yet after spending more time with it, I'm realizing that I don't dislike it. The lingering issue here is that I haven't yet found a reason for why I would play this one over the dozens of other Kinesias on my shelf. So right now I give a fair prognosis to Keen. Next, let's talk about Manhattan Project Energy Empire, which I have one play of at four players. As sure as the sun rises in the east, there will always be another efficiency euro that I somehow end up playing and writing about. And like the many others that have come and gone, this one is fine. <laughs> in Manhattan Project Energy Empire, you'll build tableaus and position workers to gain and convert resources as you feed your insatiable appetite for points. Speaking of points, this one feels quite point salady as nearly everything you do, buying a card, buying a die, rolling dice, resetting your worker supply, and more, gains or loses you points. What it sets out to do, it does well. It just doesn't set out to do anything all that unique or special. Place your worker on a space, spend more energy if the space is already occupied. From that space, collect your resources or buy the card and add it to your tableau. Then pay more energy to run your tableau cards which match your worker placement space. Once you're satisfied and or out of workers, collect them all from the board and roll your dice to see how much energy you produce. Rinse and repeat. Do it more efficiently than your opponents and you'll win. Huzzah for efficiency puzzles. The most unique aspect is related to the energy dice and pollution on your board. If you are producing anything but clean energy, then you'll often be penalized by adding more pollution to your board, which will cost you points on several occasions. But as our session proved, even the player with the most pollution can win the game if they put all their extra energy production to good use. When one peels back the thematic curtain, this mechanism is simply your common balancing act of penalizing players for having bigger engines. To be fair, this game is now 6 years old, which is like 40 board game years, but even in 2016, there were plenty of games already doing this kind of thing with much more flair and pizzazz. For my taste, the same designers released a much tighter, faster, and more unique efficiency euro in 2021's Cryo and the production blows Manhattan Project out of the water. If I'm in the mood for this style of game, Cryo is going to win the head-to-head -head every time. So I give a fair prognosis to Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Moving on, let's talk about Nine Lives, which I have one play of at four players. Man, I've been playing a ton of Trick Takers lately. It seems like every other month, there is yet another zesty Trick Taker that catches my eye. Just in the past year, I've enjoyed The Crew, Mission Deep Sea, 
Brian Baru, Ghosts of Christmas, Marshmallow Test, Cat in the Box Deluxe Edition, and now, most recently, Nine Lives. While Nine Lives is among the best-looking games of this bunch, it saddens me to also admit that it might be among the weakest games of this lot. If there are two things I've learned from this trick-taking genre, they are thus. First, the design needs to be wonky to stand out. Second, planning is paramount to strategic satisfaction. Unfortunately for Nine Lives, it leans so hard into Lesson 1 that it largely sacrifices Lesson 2. The features that initially drew me into Nine Lives were, of course, its stylish presentation and wonky twist on trick-taking. The twist is a triple header. First, players bid on tricks they'll win using a shared board with restricted options. Second, the backs of the cards show their suit, so you'll always know what arrangement of suits players have in their hands. Third, the winner of a trick takes one card they won in the trick, besides their own, and puts it back into their hand for future use. The round ends when a player runs out of cards. It's interesting in theory and novel to explore, yet that last twist proves to undermine much of what makes trick-taking a satisfying experience. Bidding in trick-taking is based on the fundamental idea that you understand the layout of the deck and work to control the tempo of the tricks with the hand you were dealt. But this all feels so much more slippery when players are constantly adding spent cards back into their hand. You can no longer count on opponents running out of a suit when someone else can feed them that suit through a one trick. The decision of bidding on a projected number of one tricks feels much more arbitrary here. We enjoyed laying our cats out on the rug, but getting the number of tricks you win to conform to your bet is like trying to give a cat commands. Perhaps they'll fulfill your wishes, eventually, but it'll often feel like a coincidence at best rather than disciplined obedience. And whenever you miss the mark of your bid, you'll end up getting penalized 1-3 to three points for your failure. But rather than feel like a minor setback in a larger session of multiple hands, it feels like an instant knockout. The game only lasts 3 or 4 hands, and odds are that someone else hasn't had a dud round, meaning there's almost no chance of you catching back up to them. Where Marshmallow Test has a more satisfying arc, Cat in the Box and Ghost of Christmas have more interesting twists, and the crew provides a tighter experience, it seems that nine lives are too few to keep this one alive in my collection. I give a poor prognosis to nine lives. Next, we're going to talk about the Wolves, which I have one play of at two players, and a review copy was provided by the publisher. The Wolves is a brand new release from publisher Pandasaurus Games that brings together area control and action planning within a fitting theme of territorial wolf packs. Players spend the game following their wild canine noses to the most pungent point and bonus opportunities across multiple types of terrain. One thing that quickly stands out is how the design takes inspiration from the likes of Hansa Teutonica. Players work to free up more of their pieces from their board. Their actions grow in power, and extra points spill out as they do so. You'll do things like howl at lone wolves, either neutral tokens on the board or opponent stragglers, to convert them to your team. You'll also frequently maneuver your alpha wolves around, as they are the beasts which help you build out dens and layers. The region tiles will award different values of points at different intervals during the game, and thus players are incentivized to roam around the map and not stay put for too long. This is where perhaps the two most unique features of the wolves are heavily involved. Off to the side of the map is a calendar board which functions as a countdown to the next scoring phase, which only triggers scoring in a handful of regions. This board gradually fills up with pieces as the players replace lone wolves and supplant dens with their own pieces. 
So it behooves the players to try and contribute to this calendar at the ideal time when they are best positioned for the next scoring. The other standout element of the Wolves comes in the form of the action economy. Players are limited to taking any two actions on their turn, plus any bonus action tokens they spend. But you can only affect a space, meaning move to it, build on it, howl at it, or so on, if you have enough matching terrain tiles to spend on your board. And the more powerful actions require more tiles. Each time you spend a tile, it is simply flipped to its opposite side to display a different terrain type. The combination of a fluid shared map of competitive area majorities and a rigid action restriction puzzle means that it's hard to plan out your turn until it's actually your turn. And once it's time to get planning, it may take a while to reconcile what you want to do with what you actually can do. The game doesn't lend itself well to those who are prone to analysis paralysis, that much is for sure. It also throws a lot of numbers at players and expects them to juggle everything. Your brain will frequently chart this type of course. Hmm, I need to spend one forest tile so I can move three wolves up to four spaces to these two forest spots, thereby bringing my region control up to five strength and barely winning over my opponent, who also has five strength, but loses the tiebreaker because I have two alpha wolves and they only have one. But I don't currently have a forest tile. So I first should spend these two Tundra tiles to howl at a lone wolf, which is on a Tundra space and within my howling range of three spaces, thereby freeing up my forest tile. Wait, what was I going to use this forest tile for again? <laughs> it's not the cleanest system, and some of that messy scruff can be found in other aspects of the experience as well. The hierarchy of player pieces, what can and can't coexist together on a single space, pack wolves, alpha wolves, dens, layers, enemy pieces, and so on, is notably muddy within the rulebook. The calendar board instructs players that any piece that is removed from the map is placed here, when, in reality, it means any piece except region scoring tokens and prey tokens. Those actually go to the players, not here. <laughs> and I've intentionally avoided trying this one at higher player counts, as I hear reports of 4th and 5th players getting burned by early turn order advantages. Not to mention the sheer downtime and board chaos that would come with 5 players. Oof. But for those who don't mind a scruffy game and want to take on a multi-turn action efficiency puzzle while they compete for area majorities, the Wolves has some neat things to offer. It certainly captures the restless roaming spirit of hungry hounds ever on the prowl. I give a fair prognosis to the Wolves. Finally, we're going to wrap things up with Ready, Set, Bet, which I have two plays of, one at four players and another at seven players. Now, how many horse betting and racing games does the world need? Ready, Set, Bet is out to prove that it needs one more. One more beyond the timeless classic Kinesia design, Winner's Circle. One more beyond this year's earlier and genre-defying roll and write, Long Shot, The Dice Game. Heck, even one more beyond the excellent party game featuring the horse's cousin, Camel Up. In an already crowded genre full of legends, Ready Set Bet faces an uphill battle to justify its existence. But despite the delicious dice decisions and beautiful bluffing bets that Winner's Circle provides, despite the unconventional interaction and wide possibilities that Longshot features, despite the boisterous drama and addictive sessions that Camel Up brings, Ready Set Bet has one trick up its sleeve that helps it to stand out from the rest. Real-time racing and betting. Over the course of four races, one player acts as the house. A dice roller, race manager, sports announcer, all of the above. 
They simply roll two dice and move the indicated horse one space. Roll, move, roll, move, roll, move. That sounds far too reductive, but I suppose it can be that basic, depending on their personality. But this role warmly invites you to get into the spirit of the race by channeling your inner sports commentator. Bonus movement also serves to spice things up, where a number that is less likely to be rolled triggers a larger burst of speed for its horse when rolled twice in a row. The house is not entirely out of the competition either, as they can bet on horses before the race starts to also feel invested in the stakes. Our preferred way to play is to rotate the house roll each race. But you can even download a solid free app that will handle all of this for you, as long as you're okay with a robot controlling your life. <laughs> for all the other players, you'll possess a handful of betting tokens that you'll be slapping down onto a large betting board in real time as the race progresses. The board is jam-packed with gambling opportunities as you predict which horses will win, place, or show, i.e. reach first place or the top two or top three, respectively. The moment three horses cross the red betting line near the end is when bets are no longer allowed, and the race will end the moment a horse reaches the finish line. You can toss your betting tokens into the large general area in hopes of nailing simple multipliers. The first person to bet on a winning horse gets the highest multiplier space, because there can only be one betting token per space, and hopefully they place their strongest betting token there. After all, the point is to win the most money. The board smartly features penalties on many spaces as well, where a bad bet can end up costing you. This introduces just the right amount of hesitation to the real-time betting, aside from the fact that you only have five precious betting tokens to work with anyway. Throw out your betting tokens too quickly, and you'll wish you had held some back when you watch an overlooked horse make a late-stage comeback. Hold your betting tokens for too long, and you'll look down to discover that all of the best spaces have already been claimed by your pesky opponents. The pressure is on from the moment the house announces and they're off. Well, there's pressure, assuming you have enough players at the table. My one gripe with this game is the simple fact that the board feels too loose and the experience too quiet at lower player counts. Our first play was at four players with one player acting as the house, meaning there were only three players fully invested in the betting and a far too generous gambling board for them to work with. Ready Set Bet was only mildly amusing at best at this player count. The races felt slower and the betting felt trivial, when the obvious strategy was to wait as long as possible to see the race play out before quickly slapping down all of your tokens last second. All to squeeze merely a few more points out of the race compared to your opponents who could just as easily make nearly equivalent bets. But I can't fault the game too much for this issue. Ready Set Bet is, at its heart, a party game meant for large and loud crowds. It really sung during our seven-player session, where the board felt immensely smaller. The game board tightness also forced those of us who had played before outside of our comfort zones and into the more zesty betting opportunities. Besides the fact that each race plays out surprisingly differently, that's how dice work, go figure, the betting board is different every round as well. Along the top and bottom of the board, you'll find prop bet cards and exotic finish cards. These feature bets such as Horse 4 will finish ahead of Horse 8, or the top three horses will finish within a short distance of each other, and so on. Furthermore, players will gain a unique VIP card between each race that grants excitingly powerful benefits and abilities. There is just the right blend of board variety and asymmetric powers to satisfy our spoiled hobbyist appetites from one play to the next. Against all odds, Ready Set Bet manages to keep pace with the best racing horses of its genre, 
and justify its place in my collection. I dare say it's the top party game of 2022. But make no mistake, it truly requires a party to shine. At 3-5 players, I have no interest in playing this one over the much tighter Winner's Circle. Meanwhile, Camel Up and Longshot the Dice Game maintain a much more consistent quality from their lowest to their highest player counts. Perhaps if Ready Set Bet had included a second side to its game board, one more condensed for 2-5 players, I'd feel much differently. It seems like a simple enough solution and practically cost-free to create, aside from the extra development work. But at any rate, I'm plenty happy to save this one for when 6-9 players are gathered for a riotous time of gambling, groans, and glee. I give an excellent prognosis to Ready, Set, Bet. That's going to do it for this episode of Candid Cardboard. But before you go, I'd like to remind you that coming to Kickstarter in January, we have two wildly clever games of trading and negotiation, namely Zuvatis and Gussie Gorillas. And the Kickstarter pre-launch page is now live. Be sure to follow the link in the description of this podcast to the pre-launch page and click to be notified the moment it launches. Thank you for supporting Bytewing Games in our quest to create and share classy board games that bite. Have a great week. My name is Nick Murray, and you've been listening to the Bytewing Games Podcast.